0: Welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs.
1: Keep peace with the lords of the jungle, the tiger, the panther, and the bear. Trouble not Hathi the silent, and mock not the
0: boar in his lair. I'm Ian Woodworth, and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly and his cornucopia of birds... (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> it's appropriate
1: yeah i was gonna say it's just this week
0: yeah so we are diving back in to the wilderness of the beast lands this week we're going to be going into the three layers of the beast lands and talking a little bit about each layer individually the sort of things that you can find there the sort of creatures that are there the landmarks and such just to give you a sense of what building blocks you have to work with if you wanted to run an adventure here.
1: Now, again, our last episode ran a bit long. A little bit. These are (laughs) the deepest of deep dives, but I will say the layers in the Beastlands are a lot more intuitive than, say, like, layers of the Abyss, where this kind of just was a weird hodgepodge. These layers make a lot of sense, and as we start to explain, you'll definitely get the theme of them, and you'll see what I mean.
0: All right, so let's go ahead and just dive straight in. Tally-ho. Tally-ho. The first layer is Kregala. Kregala is the uppermost layer. It is a land in eternal afternoon sun under the sun of Salera. Salera is the name for the sun here in the beast lands. It is primarily verdant forest split evenly in two by the passage of the river Oceanus. There are many natural bridges across The river Oceanus here, primarily formed by the intertwined branches of the trees. So the river itself is going to be under the tree canopy for most of its length through the beast lands.
1: With this, I kind of really get the mental image of the South American rainforest with the Amazon River kind of going across and then the river, obviously, or the forest on either side of the river in that really thick, heavy canopy. We mentioned in the previous episode, a lot of that wild natural growth. So this all kind of ties in really well.
0: Yes. And again, there are many offshoots off of the river that form these oxbow lakes and bayous as they wind their way through the forest. And it's always just warm enough for the vegetation growing in the area. And the temperatures remain comfortable unless they're being manipulated by spells or divine will because this is a divinely morphic plane like the majority of the Outer planes are. Time passes normally within the beastlands but it isn't marked by the movement of the sun. Instead, you end up having a daily rain shower once per day and that's how you denote what time it is by whether or not there's a rain shower coming overhead and you know the amount of time since the last one or since the one the current one started, that sort of thing. It was kind
1: of like the arena in the second Hunger Games where they had that rain shower and it hit each section of the arena at a certain time. So that was their moving clock. That is how I saw this. So again, I was like, this is where the Hunger Games got their thing. They stole some D&D.
0: Imagine that. (laughs) Whether she actually did or not. That's a question for Suzanne Collins. And I don't know if we're going to be getting Suzanne Collins on our podcast. So... (laughs) So the creatures that are native to Kregala are the creatures that would normally be active during the daytime on the material plane. So that would be all the things that you normally see out in the day. So all of your songbirds are going to be out. A lot of your bovine creatures. Deer are going to be here. They're also going to be on brooks, which is the second layer, that twilight, because they do tend to be a little more active Early in the morning and late in the evening.
1: Right. I was going to say your deer, your antelope, your swine, your elephants, pretty much anything. Like you said, if you see them in the daytime, if you see them on the nature channel and they're not using night vision, probably going to see them here.
0: And it is mentioned a little bit later on that there are large prides of lions here on Kregala. So that is another one of the creatures that you're going to run into. So some of the big cats, lions and cheetahs in particular, that do not hunt primarily at night. So the creatures that live here in this plane, we mentioned this a little bit last week, they understand the nature of the portals between the layers and can avoid them if they choose to do so, which also means that if you are able to communicate with them because they do all speak celestial and are able to convince them to help you, they can let you know the location of these portals that lead between the layers of the beast lands.
1: I mean, that said, with this, though, these animals are not fake creatures. So if you piss them off, they can lie to you just as easily and tell you the truth. Yeah. So again, pet their critters, be a good friend, don't be part of the vile hunt because they're assholes. We talked about them earlier. Yes. Don't do that.
0: <laughs> but just because you mentioned the vile hunt and how every creature within Kregala is a petitioner, every single one of them is sentient every single one of them is capable of speech that goes from the lions and the elephants all the way down to the spiders and the ants
1: so again that is one of the things with the vile hunt is they are there to kill
0: everything
1: <laughs> yes
0: absolutely but that is something to keep in mind that you know they don't have to find a big, notable creature in order to ask for directions, they can find the ello worm from Labyrinth. Yeah. They're just sort of hanging out under a leaf and ask the ello worm where the portal is. It's right there in front of you. Right. Now, while all the creatures
1: can speak celestial, how well they can communicate, that could be up to DM. Again, their intelligence level might have to do with it.
0: Yeah, most of them are going to have an intelligence of three. So they're still going to have a fairly basic, simple animal mind. I like how
1: this was tackled. If you've ever read The Once and Future King, it's some of the Arthurian legend. It's where the Disney movie Sword in the Stone kind of got the concept of Merlin changing Arthur into various animals to teach him about natural life in the world. Depending on the animals, they spoke in different ways, but at one point, Merlin turns Arthur into an ant, and in The Once and Future King, the ants could only communicate good, not good. They could talk, but that was the soul, and so you had to interpret meaning and inflection, what was good what did good mean what did not good mean so is there a portal here good not good what's that mean that was the extent of their communication
0: and you also have to keep in mind that the praying mantis that you talk to might be a praying mantis or it might be a druid who is living in the form of a praying mantis Mantis. so they could be human intelligence inside of this creature and you're just not going to know until you actually sit down and start talking with them right See here some of the locations within this first layer. One of them is the realm of Scarit, who is the god of centaurs. There is a fairly large herd of centaurs that live in this realm. He is one of the deities that is attached to the Seely court and as such often is hosting. Other members of the Sealy Court, such as Fanula, who is the goddess of the swan maze that I talked about a little bit last week, Emantensin, who is the lord of treants and dryads, Ayaktagern, who is the god of unicorns and pegasi, and of course, Titania and Oberon, queen and consort of the Sealy Court. The realm itself is comprised of a bunch of lean tos around the trunks of a glade worth of trees. And in the center of the glade are two very large, long feast tables. And because he enjoys having company over, they will regularly be feasts going on here. And this is a place where most humanoids are discouraged from visiting, unless they have a very close natural tie. So, you know, your druids would probably be okay here. He seems to have an okay opinion of elves at least in second edition. So if you are an elf, you can probably get in here. If you are a good aligned creature who definitely has a need for a safe place to nurse your wounds or if you are hungry and need to eat, then he will bring you in and let you stay for long enough to get back on your feet and then you get encouraged to leave.
1: I would say as a DM, if you're going to run this section here, I would go and take, I mean, because there's so much you got to do as a DM anyway, but take a few moments, hop online, find some books, really look up the concept of, you know, guest right and host obligations, because these are really big things, particularly when it comes to fey and fey lore, things like that things like bacchanalas and whatever. This will add a lot of flavor to your campaign and give you very strong guidelines or an outline of how your characters here are going to act with outsiders, how they're going to invite them in, what they're going to offer, how they're going to view things. If your characters decide to go off the rails, what they're going to do. If your characters play nice, what they're going to do. Again, this will add a lot of flavor to your story and help you as DM kind of give you a perspective of the NPCs.
0: Absolutely, and that's a very important thing to address, is Skerritt isn't fae in his own right, but he is affiliated with the fae. Correct. He is a lesser deity within the Seelie court, so he would have exposure to all of these Rules, You know, the rules of obligation, the rules of guest right. So especially if another one of the Seelie deities happens to be visiting another one of the Seelie powers, he is probably going to be a lot more strict in terms of guest right in the presence of another Seelie power, as opposed to if there were not a power present. Though I would see that he still would keep to those rules just not as strictly as, say, Titania would. Exactly. So near where Skerritt's realm is, is a location called the Grove of Unicorns. This is where, depending on edition, Artemis or Diana would be. And it's also where, in third edition, Elana is. She is the neutral, good goddess of nature, and she sort of supplanted Artemis and Diana whenever they... We're trying to get away from using the actual real-world pantheons, which I'm still a little bit puzzled about because they still have the Norse pantheon. They still have the Egyptian pantheon. To a lesser extent, they still have the Indian pantheon. But The Greek
1: and Roman pantheon come with so much weight, though, and I don't know, because they're used in some things, but they're kind of overdone, so I kind of like seeing some different faces represented.
0: But they were cut along with Mount Olympus. Because Mount Olympus was an Arborea, and now it's not. Right. And so I can see where you can't have one without the other. So I don't know whether they decided to cut the gods and then the mountain had to go, or if they decided to cut the mountain and then the gods had to go. Not sure. I would hazard the former. I would hazard that they decided to remove the Greek and Roman pantheons, and because of that, the mountain had to go, because you can't have Mount Olympus without the Olympian gods. True enough. Anyway, getting on a sidetrack again. In case you haven't noticed, we're in another realm of chaos. Hooray. So the Grove of Unicorns is nestled within a cluster of giant sequoia trees. And as the name suggests, it attracts unicorns. So you can find both celestial unicorns and half-celestial unicorn petitioners here. So petitioners who have taken the form of a unicorn can also be found here. So you're going to have some that are actual proper unicorns. You're gonna have some that are people in unicorn suits,
1: and you're gonna to find Tom Cruise in some really, really bad makeup. Oh, it wasn't Tom Cruise; that was Tim Curry.
0: That was Tim Curry. Tom Cruise was the kid. Yeah, that's right. Wow,
1: long time ago. Anyway, that was that's a terrible that le- movie. That was a yeah. That's legend. That didn't age well. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I haven't watched it since I was a kid, so. But the Grove of the Unicorns also hosts a lot of Pegasi. So if you want to get your My Little Pony going on, this is where to go. The lowest branches of these giant sequoia trees are hundreds of feet up so that flying creatures can move around unimpeded through the glade. May I
1: rant for a brief moment with the Pegasi? Okay. Because I see this all the time and it drives me absolutely batty. So Pegasus was the name of a specific winged stallion. And by the time we get to like the Argonauts and the legend of Perseus, all of the winged stallions except for Pegasus had been slaughtered. But Pegasus isn't the type of creature he is, it was the name of a specific creature. And then, oh, they're all Pegasus. No. Well, no. Winged Stallion, Pegasus was one. Okay, that's my soapbox. I'll step
0: off now. <laughs> <laughs> well, James, Medusa was a specific Gorgon, but Medusa's and Gorgon's are two separate creatures in D&D.
1: Yeah, that's also true. Again, that's a different soapbox I'll step up on later.
0: <laughs> but it's one of those things where it has become a, a common parlance. So. It has been.
1: It's like Walkman, where Walkman was a brand versus...
0: Or Kleenex or Q-Tip. Okay, I'm old. Yes, I grump about things. It happens. <laughs> anyway, the Grove is very close to Skerritt's centaur realm and some petitioners go back and forth between the two realms so you'll find the occasional centaur in the grove of unicorns and you'll find the occasional unicorn in scarrett's centaur home
1: and again there's enough overlap between the mythologies and realm and creature types this makes perfect sense there's no reason to keep them separate as long as you feed them all they're happy
0: yeah so elana has an enhanced magic trait within her realm So ranger spells that are cast within the grove are extended. So they would have double duration. And spells that create food and drink are maximized. So that would be something from third edition, I think, where you had to roll to see how much food, how much drink was created. Yeah. So it just automatically creates the maximum amount. It's not something that... Is really going to make a difference in fifth edition because it is a finite amount with the create food and drink spell.
1: I would say with things like goodberry, where you have to roll how many goodberry. As yeah, I believe you roll goodberries. I would maximize that. Would make a lot of sense. Again, these are just some bumps
0: on meta magic. Personally, I would probably say that if you were to cast create food and drink or cast goodberry, I would just say you create twice as much. Okay.
1: Yeah, that'd be fair. You might even, depending on here, if they're created with this, maybe give them a little extra time so they don't expire or maybe they heal a little bit. Extra. Yeah.
0: So they would last for 48 hours instead of 24 hours? Yeah. Okay. I can see that. Or, you know, honestly, like a hero's feast. Okay. So if you were to cast hero's feast within this grove... I would say that its effects would also be extended, especially if it was from a druid that cast it or a nature domain cleric. Makes perfect sense. So, yeah, that would be another thing. And this has been your homebrew content of the homebrew podcast. (laughs) (laughs) That's your first batch. We might have more later on. Who knows? So the next location is one that I got really excited when I found it. I hinted at it at the very end of last week's episode. It's called the Forbidden Plateau. It is a plateau of volcanic rock that rises hundreds of feet above the jungles in Kregala, near the banks of the Oceanus. So when you're going down the Oceanus, you can see this giant plateau looming over everything around it from the river. And the top of the plateau is extremely difficult to reach because the cliff faces are sheer, so you can't just scale the sides. And because of the mortai within the plane, you can't get up there with a fly spell. And you can't get up there with you know magic things that would fly, like a broom or a flying carpet. So the only way that you're going to get up there is if you actually have wings. So someone like an Aarakocra would be able to just fly up there. But your typical humanoid player character isn't going to be able to just climb up to the top of here. The few people who have tried to scale it and survived to return tell tales of great unclear shapes moving around the plateau's edge or huge flying forms above the plateau's trees. So... It's basically Skull Island from King Kong. I love this.
1: If I did anything, if you really wanted to toy around with this, I would totally have maybe a portal of some sort set up so your characters could get there and whether or not it was set up by... It wasn't Dr. Hammond. It Was it Mr. Hammond? Yeah, obviously it was a Mr. Hammond. But the proprietor from the first Jurassic Park with the... I can't uh, remember. Amber Kane. Yeah, he would totally be here.
0: <laughs> Probably. So it was said that while the sheer sides of the plateau can't be scaled, there are hidden tunnels and caves within because it is volcanic so it's going to have you know lava chambers that if you can find them using something like say the dwarfs racial stone cunning ability good call you can go through these tunnels and caves and find your way to the top snazzy so the primary aspect of the Forbidden Plateau is that it is dominated by dinosaurs. This is where you're going to find your dinosaurs in the Beastlands. If you want to get
1: your six-year-old hooked on d and this is the way to do it. Oh, yes. <laughs> you can just put their little plastic dinosaur on the map, and there you go.
0: Yeah, so you're going to have dinosaurs. You're going to also have your kaiju-type monsters. So you're going to have King Kong or Godzilla, or Mothra, or Gamera, you know, all of those big, oversized creatures. They're all going to live here too. And it is also home to, and I'm going to go into the disclaimer that this is second edition, and second edition isn't always politically correct. It is also home to a green-furred humanoid referred to as Beastmen. So they have a substantial advantage on hiding in a natural environment so what they had was a 90 percent success on hiding so they would basically always be able to hide and opponents would get a minus six penalty on surprise rolls so they would have a minus six penalty if they were ambushed if they were surprised
1: was it beast man that was the companion to skeletor in the old he-man cartoons
0: i think so I think there was a Beastman who he was a Beastman
1: man. and the man at arms was the one for He-Man where he was yes. okay, Yeah, it was Beastman. So totally Beast Man in what was it Guardians of the Galaxy? I forget what they actually called He-Man, but yeah, that.
0: Uh, Masters of the Universe.
1: Masters of the Universe. There you go. Guardians of what the, That's Marvel. Guardians oh, of the was. Galaxy oh, is a
0: completely different franchise. Wow. My brain just melted. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. We all have our smooth brain moments. <laughs> all right. So personally I would run this as them having expertise on stealth checks. Yeah, uh, So they get to double their proficiency bonus, probably even give them advantage on those hide checks as well. So they are akin to the ape men from the original Planet of the Apes movie. Awesome.
1: I want some Dr.
0: Slayus. That's actually what they kind of look like. Okay, but with green fur? Yeah, but with green fur. Okay, why not? So they use primitive stone weapons, blow guns, bolas, and weighted net traps. So basically every primitive native culture trope in any castaway movie ever i would
1: go ahead and give them rifles and just go full planet of the apes
0: because i mean they were still using horses and guns and bolas
1: and nets with that they just had rifles at the same time yeah i would totally go you with could that. do that yeah
0: yeah and there was one of the subtypes of the beastmen the beastman shaman had the ability to craft a poison for their darts for their blowguns that was a save or die poison sweet jesus and they didn't use magic, but they had a whopping 80% magic resistance. Wow. Mainly because they were just like, magic doesn't exist. Yeah. So again, second edition killed PCs.
1: It's just how it worked. <laughs>
0: yes. It went from zero to 60 real quick. Yeah, so that's basically what the Forbidden Plateau is. It's where you go for dinosaurs. All right. See, I got two more locations here in the first layer. The next location is a town called Signpost. And I hinted at this a little bit in the last episode. This is your typical frontier settlement surrounded by a wooden palisade. I would personally say that this is probably where the portal from the Outlands empties out. The town of Faunel in the Outlands that has the portal to the Beastlands, I would say that this is probably built up around where that portal spits out. It's not specified that that is the case, but that makes the most sense for me. It just fits, yeah. Because this is the primary location for the signers within the plane, the sign of the one, the dominant faction within this plane. The central feature of this settlement is called the Dream Hearth, which is this abandoned manor and estate that was reclaimed and restored by the signers and that they use as their headquarters on the plain. It is run by a tiefling priestess of Deneir, who is one of the knowledge gods that we're going to get to in a little bit, named Saraz. And she is also the mayor of the town. The Dream Hearth also serves as the bar or the tavern you know your frontier saloon if you will where it is your hub it is it's where your message board's going to be
1: it's where your newcomers is going to kind of gather and check in if you yeah. need to rent a room it's going to be here yeah this is the place
0: so nearby where the settlement is there's a goat path that leads down to the next layer of brooks so it is a non-portal physical passage that goes from one layer to the next. So this is a very reliable way to get from Krigala to Brooks if you needed to. The town itself gets very few visitors and only has a couple hundred inhabitants. Most of the visitors are other signers or travelers to or from the sister settlement of Waysign, which, like Signpost, sits on the border between Brooks and Karasuthra, which is the second and third layers.
1: This really has the feel of, you know, we talked about like kind of the old west, but like an early gold rush settlement where, you know, just a bunch of people started showing up at once for a little bit. So they kind of just set up an outpost or a hub. And then it was something for a little while and now it's kind of fading almost to a ghost town type status
0: i don't know i think it strikes me more as this is the leading edge of civilization rather than a bastion holding up for a last stand
1: okay so it's an outpost so it is (sighs) like an early dodge city
0: kind of yeah i would almost put this more as like an appalachian frontier town in the late 1700s okay you know they're revolutionary maybe slightly post-revolutionary that sort of feel
1: okay so like we had talked about personally earlier kind of like what the colony of Roanoke was before it went poof you know where it's just there was people there and they were setting stuff up for more people to come whether or not they did but yeah I kind of see that as an outpost type yeah thing.
0: so on that note I would see this more of a Jamestown than a Roanoke okay no that fits so there's that um <laughs> <laughs> uh, whenever you go into the uh, tavern, you can find Wemmicks, which, as we mentioned last week, are these leonin centaurs. So they've got a lion body as opposed to a horse body. So Wemmicks, lizard folk, Swan Maze, Arakokra, and Bullywugs. Those are the ones that are specifically mentioned. They can be found within the Dream Hearth, gambling, brawling, carousing, and sleeping off the night's fun.
1: I'll give you one inspiration point as a DM for anyone who tries to smuggle in some catnip.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my. That, sir, is a controlled substance in the (laughs) Beastlands. And this is also one of the very few locations within the Beastlands where you can actually buy supplies. So this is one of the very few places where you're going to actually be able to find a blacksmith, find a leather worker, any of these crafting professions that provide goods and services that adventurers might need to take advantage of. All right. And then the last location that we have here in Kregala is called the Standing Stones. The Standing Stones are a series of three concentric rings of stones with the remnants of a ruined temple to an unknown nature god sitting at the top of the hill. <coughs> Stonehenge. <coughs>
1: Excuse me. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is.
0: This is a very thinly veiled Stonehenge. And some claim that this particular location was erected to honor the Sealy Court and that with a proper offering presented at the top of the hill, you can open a portal to wherever the Seelie Court happens to be. The issue with this is going to be figuring out what the Seelie Court finds precious on any given day. Because they are fey, they are mercurial, they are chaos. So what they will want is going to vary from day to day, or even from hour to hour.
1: I don't know, firstborn son's always a good offering.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but eventually you run out of those. Uh, Granted. So there is a swift flowing stream that comes out of the forest nearby and around the southern side of this hill that typically you end up having to cross over in order to get up the hill. And it's specified as being shallow but fast, so you would have to make a dex save. In second edition, it was a dex check at minus four, so going into fifth edition, I would call that either an athletics or an acrobatics check with disadvantage, just because of how fast the water is moving. Or you run the risk of getting your feet pulled out from under you and landing in the river. Okay but it is shallow. So it's something where if you fall in, you're not going to drown and you're not going to get carried away. You're just going to get wet. It's
1: like that scene in the Kevin Costner Robin Hood where the guy's splashing, he's drowning, he's like,
0: just put your feet down. (laughs) That was in uh, Robin Hood Men in Tights. It's in both of them. Is it? I don't remember that one in the... That's what they were parroting in Men in Tights was that scene. Okay. It's been so long since I've seen the Kevin Costner Robin Hood. Well, I mean, it came out in the early 90s. But it has a very young Professor Snape. It does. Alan Rickman is... Is the Sheriff of Nottingham. Does a great job. I think that is one of my favorite portrayals of the Sheriff of Nottingham. Yes. Anyway. <laughs> anyway,
1: there's rabbits in the beast lanes, and we just chased another rabbit trail.
0: <laughs> but anyone who enters the water willingly or unwillingly gets a plus one bonus to their constitution for the rest of the day. So I would say that would be until they take a long rest. Oh, And it is cold water, so it is going to be very bracing if you fall into it.
1: I would see this as, I mean, I would have a lot of clerics and druids in the region around here kind of like ritualistic washing or baptisms in the jordan that kind of thing i could really see a lot of that going on particularly with that plus one bonus to con if there was any kind of like poison or disease you needed to roll a save on or something like that absolutely
0: yes i can definitely see that and the stream runs into a nearby lake that is even colder than the stream is to where entering it would cause you to make a system shock save in second edition I'm not 100% certain as to what that entails. Do you remember what the system shock saves are for? No, not at all. That's something we'll have to look up later. I would just personally make that a con save. With your plus one?
1: <laughs> yeah, with your
0: plus one. And you would take 1d2 cold damage on a failure. So it's not real substantial. It's bracing. Yeah, and this is like the guys that do the polar bear swims. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, where they just cut a hole in the ice and swim in the 33 degree water (laughs) or even colder than that. If it's salt water,
1: those people all sell their intelligence check. I'm just putting that out there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's supposed to be really good for your circulation.
1: Well, again, it gives you that plus
0: one con. Yeah. Right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So the standing stones themselves are home to an entity named the warden, who is a tiefling ranger who hunts those who hunt for sport in the beast lands. He's the guy who hunts the hunters.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, if we were running that vile hunt campaign we talked about earlier, this would definitely be a strong ally for your party, most likely, unless for some reason they were playing on the role of vile hunt, in which case he would be a BBEG for them. But I could definitely see this warden as maybe getting the first hints that maybe the demons or the devils was trying to use the vile hunt as a front to create a beachhead, and therefore was taking actions to kind of stop and slow them down. So I think I would definitely use this as a definite plot point and an early hook.
0: Yeah, because he is also a tiefling. Exactly. And in second edition, he is a 12th level ranger, which is quite substantial. And his tiefling heritage makes itself present by the fact that he has stag antlers. Nice. And he wears a deer mask to cover his face. So so he kind of looks like Cenarius from... Yes, he does. A little bit less because Cenarius is quadrupedal in Warcraft, but that a little more Malfurion but without the feathers. Okay, I can get that. Because Malfurion did also have the antlers. But he definitely gives predator vibes because he's got the mask, he hunts the hunters, that sort of feel to it. And he is presumed to be a member of the Wilders. So the Verdant, what were they called? The the guy's in opposition to the Vile Hunt. Yeah, the Verdant. The Verdant something or others. I'm now scrolling up to find out. Ha <laughs> ha! But he patrols the area around the Standing Stones with a pack of hunting hounds and a flock of hawks. Ooh. So yeah, if you show up, you're going to have lots of friends to contend with if you're not being very nice.
1: He would be a very strong BBEG if you're running more of an evil campaign. Going through this, I just had inspiration for another possible campaign arc through the Beastlands. What if you're a with or part of the Wild Hunt? I could see that. Would definitely be a big story to run through here. It would be a lot of fun.
0: I mean, I could see him as being part of the Wild Hunt. Absolutely. And as part of the thing, you're trying to get to the top of the Standing Stones, but you don't want, run into him so you're trying to time your quote-unquote raid of the standing stones with the wild hunt oh so that he's away so you can get up there without him interfering oh that would be a great story and then as the dm you could have a series of say wards set up that will alert him if someone tries to come in while he's away and if they trip the wards he comes back with the wild hunt Oh, my. Bam. Instant campaign, guys. You're welcome. (laughs) If you
1: write it up, just give us a thanks in the notes. There you go.
0: (laughs) There we are. All right. We have some good ideas sometimes. Every once in a while. And so if you are not a hunter, or if you succeed in reaching the center of the standing stones, the warden can actually help you activate the standing stones to create a one-way portal to Sigil. So this is also a good way, if you are being pursued, to get into... GTFO? Yeah, to GTFO. (laughs) And it also says that if you are in opposition to him, he's not going to kill you outright. Because he is good aligned, he is in a good aligned plane, but he will knock everybody unconscious without any qualms. And then he will pin a note to one of them, giving them directions to a portal that is a day's walk away up the stream, and the note itself acts as the key to open the portal that lets them go through.
1: That's kind of awesome. This guy's kind of a dick. I like him. He's not as bad as you know some of the other ones we, we dealt with. He's not like the Moriai, but yeah, I kind of like him.
0: Yeah. So that's basically all of Cragala. Everything that I could get.
1: Layer one, round
0: two. Round two, fight. So the second layer of the Beastlands is called Brooks. B R U X. It is the middle layer of this sandwich. And it sits in eternal dusk. So, this
1: would definitely be my layer.
0: Yeah, this is a whole lot of fun. So, the sun is visible as a low red orb just above the horizon on one side. And on the opposite side, you can see the moon rising off of the horizon. So, the sun and the moon are both present in the sky, just clearing the horizon.
1: And really, for me, dusk is like my absolute favorite time of day anyway. I'm all about this layer.
0: And so it is cooler than Kregala, and it is covered in large swaths by fog and mist. And the animals that you find on brooks are those that are active primarily in the morning or in the evening and which sleep through the heat of the day. So things like tigers and bats and foxes. And like we mentioned a little bit earlier, deer because they do tend to come out in the morning and in the evening.
1: Yeah, your bear, You mentioned before songbirds, but anyone that's done any kind of like duck or bird hunting, or if you can hear mine now, tend to be really active at this part of day as well. They tend to roost a bit more at noon, and they are definitely more active in the dawn and dusk points. So again, probably going to see a lot more in the way of
0: smaller cats. So travelers who get to Brooks unintentionally can usually find their way back to Krigala by finding a stream and following it back to the River Oceanus because the River Oceanus is on the first layer. So all of the streams that come off of Oceanus, they can wind through all three layers, but the river itself is on the first layer. So if you can find a stream and follow it upstream, you'll eventually come to the River Oceanus, which is counterintuitive because usually it's you find a stream and you follow it downstream to get to civilization right but you're not going for civilization you're going for the river so (laughs) there's a lot of stuff that's backwards in here because it is a plane that is slightly chaotic so take all your wilderness
1: skills that you learned and just throw it right out the window and you'll be (laughs) okay
0: (laughs) flip it and reverse it and that's all that we can say for copyright reasons. <laughs> one of the gods that you can find here is, I apologize if I meant to this, Pushan, who is from the Indian slash Vedic pantheon. He is a god of guidance and prosperous journeys. And he watches over those traveling through the wilderness. One of the things that he is known for, at least in d and I don't know about actual Hindu mythology, but one of the things he does is he shows shepherds The best places to graze their sheep without harming the environment.
1: Oh, nice. If you wanted a more common Western substitution, Hermes or Mercury would be a great one for here. Again, a god of travelers, though, tends to be a little bit more of a trickster, but then also, you know, had the whole thing where he kind of herded off Apollo's herds and flocks for various reasons, mostly to piss Apollo off because that's what he did. But again, would have that same feel so that traveler obviously has some something to do with herding and guiding though so, honestly with this if you're a dm give yourself some culture learn a little bit extra something look this guy up it sounds kind of cool
0: yeah all right the first landmark is the town of Jankal. zhankal uh, is the town that is populated by the al who are also known as the avariel or the winged elves although they really don't like it when you call them winged elves, so keep that in mind. <laughs> the town is constructed as a series of interconnected nests that are woven from the branches of the trees of the plain and reside way up high in the canopy. This is the town that I was mentioning last week where the lowest point of the town is a mile off the ground.
1: That's just crazy. So with these averial, it would be a bad idea to ask them cookie or toy?
0: Absolutely. <laughs> And the town itself covers the area of a square mile horizontally and is vertically almost half a mile tall. That's
1: so a half a mile tall would put us at basically uh, roughly about 2,500 feet up. So take that, divide that by 10. That gives us uh, basically 250 story building. Yeah, roughly. So like everything here is about as tall as the Empire State Building.
0: The town is that tall.
1: Yes, the whole town's that tall. So, I mean, that kind of gives you an idea of up.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so just trying to think the whole thing from the ground to the pinnacle of this town is going to be somewhere around 7,600 feet. That's crazy. So, yeah, that's a pretty sizable mountain. That
1: defenstration is absolutely capital punishment here. Just kind of...
0: (laughs) Yeah, especially since you can't use a fly spell. Yeah. So, if you don't have wings... You're going to have a bad time. So, the bulk of the Avarial worship Remnus, who is the god of giant eagles. But there is a contingent that is slowly but steadily growing, comprised primarily of the artisans, craftsmen, and philosophers among the Avarial, who have started worshiping Erdri Fenya, who is the Seldarine or elven goddess of the air. And it is mentioned that there's starting to be a growing tension over how is this going to change the dynamic of this particular area of the plane if the primary god changes hands?
1: Do you want to have a really nasty, rough campaign? You could have a total Reformation counter-Reformation story going, and it would get nasty. It could. It really could. Speaking of defenestration, as, as we had previously, so... I mean, those yes. two kind of go hand in hand. <laughs> they do.
0: They do. So Remnus, because we have mentioned him a couple of times, he is an eagle god, literally an eagle god. He's a giant golden eagle with a 55 foot wingspan wow. and glowing green eyes. I like him. He is always accompanied by a flock of hunting birds, giant eagles, and rocks. Also known as
1: murder birds.
0: Absolutely, murder (laughs) birds. And he always has a small number of sentient petitioners who always attend him. So that would be, he would have a certain cadre, probably of Avariel, petitioners who would be accompanying him at all times. Okay, so if we're liking this dude. And the town itself is fairly sparsely populated despite being as large as it is because there are so many big birds that come in here and how all of the Avariel have wings so they can fly. So you need all that extra room for all of the wings. You need some elbow room. So the Avariel are very susceptible to fire. That is an aspect that is laid out in the second edition books. So they are very leery of anyone who Uses fire, especially any wizards that use fire evocation magic, anyone who would be summoning elementals, especially fire elementals, anyone who utilizes things that catch fire.
1: And if you go back to like old 60s, 70s, 80s fantasy lore, you know, again, that was very common amongst the Elvis races or dryads or those that lived in a tree or a great forest that was a fairly common trope for the time and again second edition is about as old as i am it came out in the early 80s so again that trope rings fairly true kind of think of the treants in lord of the rings when they found that Saruman was cutting down the trees for the forges and stuff like that and that's kind of the feel and reaction they are going to get to this they distrust that because Fire can spread very easily. Generally, if you're going to have a fire, no one ever has a small fire. Fire is a tool for using things. So more industry, more fire, more people, more fire. That kind of stuff spreads and grows.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And their wings can be used as ingredients for crafting magical items like potions of flight, wings of flying and rings of feather fall. So Magnus needs to come here. <laughs> he is the ripper of wings. And because of this. Uh, they are sometimes hunted. I would definitely see them as being prime marks for the vile hunt. Yes. Yeah. Despite the fact that they are not actually beast petitioners of the flame.
1: Just because one, they protect the beasts and because they are so, for lack of a better term, it's going to be very callous, but they are useful. They are reagents and they are going to harvest them as they see fit. Yeah. I, I
0: Absolutely. absolutely see that. And because of all of that, They do not easily trust anyone without wings. So you're going to have a hard time actually getting any sort of real trust with them or even getting up to Junkal if you're not an Aarakocra.
1: No, no. What I'm seeing here is like someone trying to sneak in and they hear this. And so basically they go like full Vegas and do like the drag queens with the giant feather wings and the bows.
0: (laughs) No, what? world of (laughs) you
1: Okay. Sorry. That's my craziness.
0: All right, moving along. Next up, we've got the realm of the Cat Lord's Prowl. So as we mentioned... Can you do a little turn on the catwalk? Prowl. So as we mentioned last week, we were going to get into the Cat Lord a little more in depth this week. Cat Lord is one of the quasi-powers of the Beastlands. The Cat Lord is not a god. They are not a divine power, but they are... Very powerful individuals, and they do still attract petitioners. So they're kind of like proto-quasi-gods. A step below. The almost demigods. They're like a step below where Stillsong was. Yes. From a classical mythology standpoint, they would be heroes. Yes. They would be proper demigods in that sense. Okay.
1: They'd be like Hercules, Perseus. Yes. That
0: kind of, yeah. Okay. I'm with you. So in addition to big cats of all sorts, so lions and tigers and jaguars and panthers and cheetahs, they also attract feline lycanthropes, so wear tigers, wear jaguars, etc. The current cat lord is female, and as I said last week, in her humanoid form, she has a long dark hair and these bright green cat eyes. and she has this huge grudge against the Egyptian slash Mulharandi goddess Bast. The current cat lord recently took over. And the previous cat lord was male. And it is presumed... This is what I was able to put together. This may or may not be correct. That Bast showed up and picked up the previous cat lord and took him away as her consort. And that the current cat lord and the previous cat lord were once an item... And that the current cat lord is pissed off at Bast for Joe Leaning her man. So we have some catty drama going on? Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. So that's what I have sort of put together. It may or may not be true, but damn, I like it.
1: Yeah, I kind of like it. Again, going back to the whole grudge is over a dude. Eh, sure, why not? You know, I would almost do this personally. Like if I was writing, you know, lore from scratch. Do it like a, there could be only one type thing. So Bast is a cat god, but you know, know, fuck you, I'm cat god, you know. I would do it more that way over fighting over a dude. But either way works. So I mean, roll with it. Not a bad story.
0: The thing is, the cat lord isn't a god.
1: Right, but she could see herself at that level and be pissed that she's not, you know. Maybe. Either way. I don't know. Like I said, it seems like whenever there's a lady, she's either a consort or she's upset about a dude being stolen. I mean, it's yeah, it's a trope. It seems a little too easy to me. Like I said, this...
0: Again, you have to remember, this was written in 1995.
1: Granted, like I said, yes. Maybe we get some
0: updates. We'll see. Yeah. So the Prowl is not in a fixed location. It is wherever the Cat Lord happens to be. Uh, Many of the past Cat Lords have chosen to run on Kregala, with the prides of lions and saber-toothed cats that are up there. The current Cat Lord chooses to be in Brooks, where she is now. The Prowl tends to hunt down any humanoids that they come across. And if they survive, they are dragged to the Cat Lord and have to appeal to them. And to quote the second edition book, this feline is vain and fickle though, and any Burke who doesn't garnish the Lord with a good bit of praise enough to satisfy a cat's ego won't last long.
1: I like it. And this would also be another wonderful facet to throw into the wild hunt. Absolutely. Because if you get caught, I mean, now you can have two separate, I mean, you can have groups within the wild hunt and depending on if or who you get caught by is where they take you could definitely put a nice little spin on things as
0: well. Yeah, I could see that. And if you are good enough and you're convincing, Roll that charisma check. <laughs> yeah. You gain some benefits by being allowed to rest within proximity of the prowl. For one, you can rest fully in your armor without penalty, which that's a rule that doesn't really get much use, especially in fifth edition. Yeah, that gets overlooked quite a lot. But typically you can't get the benefits of a long rest if you're sleeping in your armor. You only need half of a long rest or four hours to to regain all expended spell slots. Short rest, I take that. And your wounds heal faster. Because you didn't just automatically recover all of your hit points at the end of a long rest in second edition. You actually had to roll for how many hit points you would recover. You would regain, I think it was an extra three hit points Okay, whenever you finished your long rest. Personally, what I would say is whenever you would take a short rest within the Prowl, you would basically get to roll one hit die for free for healing. That's a fair translation. I like it. That's how I would personally translate that. Yeah, no, that that stands. That works. The next location is Ursus, which is a very tiny realm by comparison to a lot of the divine realms that we've been talking about lately of Balador who is known as Father Bear, the god of werebears. You don't hear about werebears too often, which is really unfortunate. I would totally rock a werebear. There was a guest in season one of Critical Role who was a werebear bloodhunter. Ooh. Whenever they went into Dis, they found her in Dis. Okay. I can't remember who was playing it. That may have been Devin Rue's character. Uh, I can't for the life of me actually remember. So don't quote me on that. (laughs) But Balador doesn't have a formal priesthood, so he doesn't have a lot of power as a god. His powers are fairly limited, but he is still sought out for counsel on many matters by good and neutral sylvan powers. So your nature gods are going to come to him for counsel whenever they're looking to undertake a certain course of action.
1: Okay, so far this guy's my favorite.
0: (laughs) Oh, he's great. His realm is a small, comfortable campsite. So it is a ring of semi-permanent tents surrounding a happily burning campfire.
1: This is getting better.
0: Yeah. So the camp is usually made in an alpine valley high in the mountains of Brooks. And Father Bear loves to take on his bear shape and go out into the river and go fishing for trout and salmon.
1: Again, got to give some more love to Otis the Bear. If you've not seen Otis (laughs) the Bear, look him up. He's my hero.
0: Yeah. His only true enemies are evil lycanthropes. And so if any character who has been afflicted with lycanthropy but hasn't shifted alignment yet, because at least the way it worked in 2nd edition, there aren't really hard and fast lycanthropy rules in 5th edition. At least not official. There is a bunch of third-party lycanthropy rules. But... The way it used to work is you would catch it, and as you would shift into your lycanthrope form, your alignment would gradually shift to evil. Right, it corrupted you over time. So if you haven't shifted to evil yet, you can go here to be cured of lycanthropy. One of his faithful followers, whose name is Brother Berryjaw the Black, he is a werebear whose bear form is is that of a small black bear who retains his human thumbs on his forepaws. He can cure you of lycanthropy, and he will charge you nothing for it. It is enough for Father Bear to know that he denies his enemies another follower. Dude, Father Bear rocks. Father Bear is the best. Be more (laughs) like Father Bear. Exactly. Like,
1: yeah, Father Bear's my new D&D hero.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And now into the last location here in Brooks, uh, one that sort of seems a little bit out of place to me, at least on the surface, called the Library of All Knowledge. It was melded into the House of Knowledge, which is Ogma's realm in 3rd edition. But in 2nd edition, it was still its own separate entity, and it resides here on the second layer of the Beastlands. And the line from 3rd edition... See, here this is from the player's guide to Feyrune. It says, the plane is dedicated to the preservation and transmission of all kinds of knowledge, not just ancient secrets in dusty scrolls, but the living knowledge of song and story, the blessing of speech, and the understanding that comes from deep familiarity with other living creatures. So once you get to that, it makes a little more sense why it's here. Because it is the knowledge of experience. It's not just, you know conceptual knowledge it's practice knowledge
1: right and then when you tie in like what the singing sharks can offer you if you understand their song and you get that understanding of something profound about the universe that kind of ties in with it as well this is going to be very deep knowledge it's not you know who's on first but the answer to philosophical questions like if the tree falls in the forest you know that kind of thing that's how i would imagine it personally
0: yeah so this particular realm in second edition is the realm of two powers named Denir and Melil. Denir later became an actual lesser deity. Melil still is a demigod as of third edition. I don't think that they actually made it into any pantheons later on, but they're both knowledge entities. They're subservient entities to Ogma, the god of knowledge. Denir is also referred to as the scribe of Ogma. He's a god of visual art, Cartography, literature, and scholars. So anything that can be placed on paper to record knowledge. I like it. Whereas Milil is also referred to as the lord of all songs, one who watches while music is alive, or the guardian of singers and troubadours. He's primarily worshipped by humans and elves. He is a god of song, poetry, eloquence, creativity, and inspiration. Now,
1: I would wonder how this works in with still song, as we mentioned before. I bet there's. Probably some sort. I would almost guarantee there's some sort of close collaboration, if not like symbiosis between these two.
0: I would almost say that Still Song is an element of Millil that has broken free and is becoming its own entity, despite the fact that Still Song, as far as I can tell, doesn't exist past second edition. Gotcha. So it may be a thing where if you wanted to reconcile that going from second to third is that still song was absorbed into millil i could see that as well but this could also explain why Milil isn't a full god while they're a demigod because there's this aspect that's floating around of this power that they can't tap into
1: so they're incomplete or even having still song being like an uh an avatar of millil would also be another way to do that, which would be kind of cool.
0: That could also work. So these two are often paired with their overarching deity, Agma, the god of knowledge, as well as Gond, who is the god of smithing and inventiveness. Ooh,
1: this is where you're bringing your artificers, boys and girls. Yes.
0: So the realm itself is a collection of buildings, each one storing a different aspect of of Knowledge. Oh, uh, it's a college campus. It is a college <laughs> campus. Gond usually stays within the building called the Wonder Home, which is a workshop full of his mirrored inventions, and the closest thing to a distinct realm for any of the gods that are present here. And Starting in 3rd edition, Ogma within this realm maintains three different springs of water that offer a different type of boon. Each spring offers the benefits of the heal spell when you drink from it, in addition to one extra bonus, depending on which spring it is. So the Spring of Knowledge answers one question as by the Commune spell. So you're basically able to ask an entity a question and receive an answer. Okay. The Spring of Music gives you a plus 20 bonus to your next perform check within one week. Oh, your bards are going to love that one. And then the last one is the Spring of Poetry, which gives the benefit of the tongues spell for 48 hours. Giggity. Oh, wait, wrong tongues. Wrong tongues. (laughs) And the petitioners within this particular realm, they retain all of their knowledge that would be attached to a craft, knowledge, or perform skill. So the spirits of bards would remember all of the stories that they learned. You know, a blacksmith would remember all of the tricks of the trade that he learned. A scholar would remember all of the knowledge that they gleaned. But they don't remember them in any sort of context because all of the additional memories pertaining to their life are gone. Say that again? Because they're petitioners, all other aspects of their memories are gone. Gotcha. Gotcha. Everything from their life is just wiped except for their knowledge on these craft, knowledge, and perform skills. Okay. So they possess this knowledge, but without the context of it.
1: Okay, because I was thinking where we talked about in Pandemonium a couple weeks back, where if they drank from the River Styx, they could lose all of their memories. Which, again, not amnesia. You lost all of your memories. So I'm wondering... If you had a flask from this spring of knowledge or something like that, if this would
0: help you regain those, perhaps. Well, these are petitioners. Just these are specifically
1: for for petitioners, or yes, okay. This
0: is specifically petitioners. This isn't people coming to visit. Okay, this is for the spirits of the dead that are living here. Okay,
1: never mind then. Almost a good story point, but meh.
0: So the library of all knowledge supposedly holds all lore, songs, spells, and magic items in the universe. This is that library in Doctor Who? Yeah. I like it. Hopefully we don't have the silence in here. Yeah. That is still my favorite episode of Doctor Who's silence in the library. I liked that one. So the primary proxy, so the powerful petitioner, Within the library is a human named Thomas Bookbinder, who I would consider to be like the head librarian, almost. Okay. And because they are a proxy, they're not just a standard petitioner, they have been granted additional power. So they are in that weird liminal space between a petitioner and a demigod. So they've got some power, but not divine levels of power. So it's kind of like the Archons? Yeah, yeah these would be kind of along the lines of like the warden archons or maybe the sword archons. Okay. So that middle management, if you will. Fair enough. The Dwight Schrute's of the library. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, it is assumed, but not confirmed that there is a portal between the library of all knowledge and the house of knowledge, which is Ogma's realm on the outlands because both Denier and Melil are gods affiliated with Ogma, and because this is a realm designed to store knowledge, that okay. connection makes sense.
1: You need your backups. No, I totally like
0: this, yeah. But that pretty much wraps up, Brooks, going into the third layer now of Karasutra. Karasuthra is the lowest level and sits in Eternal Night. It is the realm of the mightiest nocturnal beasts, so owls, panthers, wolves, you're probably going to find the wolf lord down here with his pack of wolves.
1: You'll find the prowl down here almost definitely as well at various points.
0: Oh, I'm I'm sure that some... Of the prowl? Of the prowl is going to come down here because there are some cats that do not hunt at night. Yeah. But some hunters from the material plane like to come down here to test their metal, looking for trophies. And according to the books, some even survive to try a second time. Oh my... So this is going to be the ultimate big game hunter experience.
1: Yeah, this is probably the harshest of the three layers for, for various reasons. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, This is the most dangerous game layer of the plane. Yeah. So in older editions, when the plane of shadow was still a thing, you could cross over from the plane of shadow to Karasutra and vice versa.
1: With that, I would actually uh, translate that to fifth edition that I would put portals here from the Shadowfell.
0: Yeah, I can definitely see this as a way to get in. And this would be a, an interesting way to get to the Outer Plains is by going through the Shadowfell and into Karasuthra.
1: I like that because as we talked about the Shadowfell forever ago, but the Shadowfell, and for the life of me, can't remember the name of the city right now. But it was a place to find odds and ends and items that you normally couldn't find other places And so this definitely has that kind of forbidden contraband, you know, back alley type feel of getting somewhere else. So
0: yeah, no, this definitely fits. And so evil creatures would be uncomfortable here because of the good alignment of the plane, and they would likely be hunted by the denizens of the plane. But those desperate to escape more foul creatures on their home plane might just hide out here for a while.
1: Again, lesser of two evils. I'm sure there's a pun in there with that somewhere. No, I like that. Again, if we were running the Vile Hunt blood lore thing, this works out really well. And we've got a couple critters that we're going to mention here in the bit that would tie in really well with that too. So again, this is another solid plot point or hook that we could run with some things in there as
0: well. And especially if we were giving the Vile Hunt this infernal or abyssal tie-in. Yeah. Because then it gives both a public and an ulterior motive for why they are in Karasutra. Because Karasutra would be the logical place for them to come through. Yes. So one of the deities that is mentioned in the second edition book as being here on this particular layer of the Beastlands is the Japanese rain deity Kura Okami. And I don't know if that is an actual deity or if that's just one of the powerful rain spirits i will admit i do not know enough about japanese mythology to make that statement with any sort of reliability but he's depicted as being an older individual and sometimes he's a bit forgetful so sometimes he will flood an area because he forgot he put a rainstorm there or cause a drought in another area because he forgot to water it.
1: I kind of love this Mr. Magoo deity. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. Like, he can't remember where he put his glasses. He forgot some stuff. Oh, wait, I left the water running over. Ah, oh, crap. Okay, I gotta go turn that off. <laughs> yeah,
0: and that's literally all that they say about him, is that he's a forgetful rain god. He's
1: not as good as Father Bear, because Father Bear's just, dude, fa- I love Father Bear. Father
0: Bear is the best.
1: Yeah, but this guy's pretty cool. <laughs>
0: Uh, next place is the Labyrinth of Fiery Doom. Again, that's just, I mean,
1: you're flipping through for mod. Oh, wait, this one looks fun.
0: <laughs> yeah. So it is a complex of maze-like tunnels carved into a mountain in the deepest, darkest portion of the plain closest to the veil with the Plane of shadow. And it is distinctly carved. These are very uniform tunnels. It's not a natural flow. It may have started as a natural flow, but has since been modified. And that is something that you can tell when you're passing through it.
1: I've seen a couple ads for some various things. There's a, I don't know if it's an app or a program, but it's called Endless Dungeon. And basically it just continually spawns and generates corridor paths for your party to run through. This would be perfect for that, or that would be perfect for this either way. Yeah, I can see that.
0: There's plenty of evidence within here to suggest that evil creatures have made their lair here. So things like acrid steam vents, lakes of bubbling mud and rivers of boiling water that flow through without rhyme or reason. The rumor that is going around and the only thing that your players are ever going to be able to find without actually coming into here is that an ancient red dragon has made its lair here and that it has shacked up with its Tanari or demon lover and it is sitting here lording over the horde that it has collected over the eons. Let's go rate it. Yeah. (laughs) But the truth of the matter is that the entities hold up in here are an Agathanon Asimon, so a rank-and-file, basically middle-management angel named Jannar, and his lover, Nalura, who is an Arrhenius, so a devil, a fallen angel.
1: This is basically the plot to Bad Omens.
0: It is. It really (laughs) is. This is Aziraphale and Crowley, yeah. So they were both on a mission to the material plane disguised as mortals, and they fell in love with each other. Bah. And then once they realized one another's true identity, they ran away, hopping from plane to plane, before finally settling in Karasutra. Janar uses his natural shape-shifting ability to take the guise of a red dragon when he needs to, and Nalura alters her appearance slightly to look like a succubus instead of an Arrhenius. So this has become characters that they have acquired, basically, to further their survival. And the thing is, despite both of them having been corrupted, both of them performed their duties admirably to what they were supposed to be doing. Nalura has seduced a paragon of purity, while Jinar has turned the devil's lustful nature into true love. I like that.
1: These make some really good characters. You can do a lot with these. And then again, going back with that Vile Hunt, Blood War hook, really you can work these two into that storyline really easily as well. Because at the very least, they're going to know something about
0: something. And this definitely has that Diablo Sanctuary feel. Very much, yes. Because it's where the upper plane and the lower plane have come together have truly fallen in love and are seeking a world where they can just love each other. And now we have Nephilim. And now we have Nephilim. Excellent. All right. And then the last location that I've got for today is another realm called Stormhold. Stormhold is the realm of Strongmouse, who is the giant god of weather and storms. Who
1: is completely different than Deadmouse, is the god of EDM.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) More ghosts and stuff. Yes. So he is the primary deity of cloud and storm giants. And his realm is this castle that is floating atop a giant thunderhead that is accompanied by thunder, lightning, wind, and driving rain. So he is literally just riding the tempest wherever he darn well pleases. That kind of sounds fun. It really does. The way that it is understood is that the Mortai or how he gets around because there's always at least one Mortai at his castle and that the thunder and lightning is the way that the Mortai communicate with one another. It's no calcifer, but I'll take it. So within the castle, there is a magical pool that is just referred to as the opal pool where strong mouse likes to just go for a swim and relax. And you can find his sister Hytea, who is the giant goddess of agriculture and nature and Surminare who is the queen of the selkies you can find both of them also within the pool standing on the outside of the pool it appears to be just this normal 100 foot long pool so this olympic sized swimming pool but when you actually get into the pool it is infinite in size so it is an endless pool that's kind of i would freak out like you, <laughs> you jump
1: in and you get that weird vertigo and all of a sudden like the edge of the pool's like Way over there, be
0: like, um, I want out now, (laughs) yeah. So, creatures that are non evil that Strong Mouse allows to swim in the pool, um, gain the effects of the magical healing waters of the pool. Some of the effects of the pool are the heal, restoration, and regeneration spells snazzy. So, yeah, you can regrow lost limbs by swimming in the pool. You can cure all of your status effects by swimming in the pool. You can eliminate curses. This is where you
1: bring your people that drink the water of sticks.
0: Yes. You just bring them up here and chuck them in the pool. Yeah, <laughs> just just learn to swim, bud. <laughs> so he is often visited by Erdryphania, the Seldarine goddess of air, Sirenita, the goddess of the Aarakocra, and Remnis, the god of eagles. They are all fairly common Visitors to his plane. Just up there eating a charcuterie board? Yeah. Remnus shows up with his flock whenever he decides to head down to the Night Realm to go hunting. But yeah, that's pretty much it.
1: Yeah, no, these are a lot of fun. And like I said, there is a lot of story possibility, there's a lot of flavor you can do. This realm has sadly been left behind, and I kind of hope more people start picking it up. Uh, I hope Wizards kind of gives them a second glance and maybe does some write ups through here again in the future.
0: I would love in 5.5 or whatever they ended up calling it. Because a lot of people have been talking about, you know, maybe we're going to get a Spelljammer. Maybe we're going to get a Planescape. I would love to get even just a basic Planescape primer for 5th edition out of 5.5. Yeah, that would be great.
1: But again, like I said, these last two, last four weeks we've done, these past two planes have been some really, really deep dives. I hope you guys have enjoyed them because I really have. I love getting in and just... There's so much little lore that's been forgotten. I love kind of bringing these back up to the surface. So definitely hope you all enjoyed this with us.
0: Yeah. So thank you everyone for joining us again. If you enjoyed the show or if you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas, please send us an email under taste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. I'm still doing our Shakespeare and insult page day calendar-inspired roleplay prompts six days a week. They go up on the Twitter account and then get cross-posted to the Instagram and Facebook accounts at Undercome and Taste. We're also on Patreon, patreon.com slash taste. That's where we host all of our write-ups, both the free ones and the ones for patrons only. So if you would like to support the show financially, please come over there and consider becoming a patron. We're also on Discord, so come on over and talk to us on Discord. You can find a link to our Discord channel in the show notes you can find our podcast wherever
1: you listen to podcasts subscribe give us a rate and review this helps increase our visibility and lets us know what
0: you want to hear more of so thanks once more for listening next week we're going to have pat and lee from changed stars on for an interview so come and join us next week happy gaming thank you for joining us for another episode of undercommon taste if you enjoyed what you heard please pass it along to your friends if you have comments suggestions or ideas you can email them to us at undercommontaste@gmail.com. at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. You can find us wherever you find your podcasts, and we would greatly appreciate any likes, ratings, and comments you could provide. Find us on social media. We're at Undercommontaste on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and on Twitter at the handle at UCT Homebrew. If you would like to help support the show financially, please visit our Patreon page, at patreon.com slash undercommontaste. Our theme is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find her online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash Crowell. Thanks again for listening, and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.